Hello, and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan, and I'm here with my co-host, Gabia. Hello. So today we will be discussing The Fall, a 2006 film written and directed by Tarsim Singh. Uh, this is one of the most famous flops in basically all of Hollywood history. It was self-financed. It is an incredibly beautiful movie, the kind of fantastic plot running alongside a real-world plot set in 19... 19- the 1910s in Los Angeles. Lee Pace stars as a movie star who has been injured and is laid up in a hospital. More of a stuntman, really. Stuntman, yes. And there is a young girl there whom he befriends and he tells her a story. That's basically the plot of this movie. It goes in some various different directions that we will discuss, but um, it is sort of a, a wild wild ride of a film we should say first of all that we are discussing this because vanessa whose last name we will not reveal requested that we discuss this for her friend sam's birthday so happy birthday to sam we hope you enjoy this episode we will endeavor to make it as entertaining as possible uh, I had never seen this movie before i believe you had seen it a couple of years ago yeah i i saw i watched it in um like really soon after it came out actually and i think it may have been because of Pushing Daisies. Um, my friend Tom and I liked Pushing Daisies in university and this was like our favourite movie for like a year and we watched it together a couple of times and it was really interesting to revisit because I'd forgotten a lot of the actual kind of story and it's very different when you're like an actual adult who who can interpret narrative and that sort of thing. But um, it's just so beautiful. I still really love it. Um, Lee Pace's performance is amazing and I think it's kind of interesting, like you said, that... Um, this film did not do well at the box office. Um, it was made by a relatively obscure director at the time. Like he'd done one movie before, which was The Cell, um, a kind of medium bad reviewed movie starring Jennifer Lopez. But I would definitely categorize this as a cult film. Like people who like it absolutely love it. And it's sort of rare to see a cult film that isn't like really edgy, I guess. Like most cult films are either kind of falling into the kind of Tarantino edgy end of the spectrum or their relatively impenetrable art cinema or their kind of catastrophically bad and silly and this is this other category where it's very accessible but it's weird enough and poorly marketed enough at the time that it didn't get the success it deserved yes this is a movie that i have definitely like seen images from for years, if you have spent any time on Tumblr at any point in <laughs> <Yes>. Tumblr's history, <laughs> you have seen images from this movie, but it wasn't something that I'd ever seen, despite sort of vaguely having always meant to. Uh, I think for film people, too, the costume design is quite revered from this film. Yeah, it's by Eiko Ishioka, who's one of the kind of most renowned costume designers basically in film history. Um, she's really incredible and she specializes in these or specialized in these really kind of opulent, elaborate, like non-realistic costumes. Um, I talked about her a bit in our episode about Bram Stoker's Dracula, where she did some amazing kind of romantic Dracula outfits. Yeah, so this does have a cult following, as you said, both in terms of like the Tumblr crowd, but also, you know, the, the film Twitterati type of people who appreciate its sort of aesthetic uh, values, I would say. So it was something I'd always meant to watch, and then we had an excuse to do it this week. Um, and it was really interesting 
to watch it out of context because I had remembered that it had made no money, but I had not realized that it was this kind of self-funded artistic statement until I looked it up on Wikipedia after the fact. And this is this movie that sort of takes place in two worlds, not literally, you know, one of the worlds is a story that Lee Pace is telling to this girl. But when you're watching it, it has these two strands. And one of them basically takes place in this hospital. It's a very basic set. I'm sure it costs almost no- cost almost nothing to put together. Yeah, they filmed it in an operational hospital in South Africa. <laughs> yeah. And then the other half, which is the fantastical half, is filmed on so many different locations. It is... It took them what, four years to make this movie because it was self-financed, and so he would just sort of make some money and then they'd go shoot in another outrageous location. Yeah, I mean, a few of them he was literally filming on the location he'd used for an advert because Tarsem Singh, predominantly, he has directed a lot of adverts, and I feel like you can almost tell that by watching the film because the the way he uses uses visuals is like when you see a really high-budget kind of classy ad when they're trying to really inspire you to buy Pepsi they will find this really visually striking image and he's you know used that power for good rather than evil and it's just like (laughs) there's so many locations and there's like several locations which in the years after you would see in other more famous films yeah but the effect of watching all of this is it was actually almost stressful to me Because it clearly had cost so much money. I was like, this is just not... Like, it's almost too much. And it was interesting because it is this movie that is not really about... Not about actually at all classic Hollywood. It's just that that happens to be the thing. It's about the power of storytelling. (laughs) Right. Um, But this guy works in very early movies. And obviously that is a deliberate choice. But it's not... The movie isn't really engaging too much with movie making, which is fine. But I kept thinking about sort of old Hollywood cinema. And I was recently on vacation with our friend Charlotte. And we watched a bunch of old 30s movies that were completely different from this in every respect. But they were all shot at that time, all on sets, right? Like everything was on a set. And if you wanted to go outside, you'd maybe get like two outside shots or, and then you'd have like a background that would be the outdoors, right? Yeah. And then I also had seen recently a couple of movies from the 50s. I saw Sweet Smell of Success and then this Nicholas Ray movie that I don't remember the title of, but that's fine because it fucking sucked. But they both had a lot of exterior shooting in them. And if you have watched a lot of movies from these decades, it's really exciting when movies get to the point where they're shooting outdoors because it had not really been possible up until that point, just in terms of money. Um, Treasure of Sierra Madre, if you're interested in this stuff, is one I would recommend in terms of like a really good example of all, all on location. It's so exciting to finally get to see this stuff. But watching this, I kept thinking like, you know you can use a set like, you don't have to go to all of these places. And I was like, why am I being such a curmudgeon about this? Like, obviously, it's like, these are amazing visuals, right? And so I was kind of analyzing my own reaction as I was watching the film. And were you like, is it because I'm having to do budget stuff at work? 
Perhaps, yes. I am a bookkeeper <laughs> in my real life. But um, I think that one of the kind of issues with the movie, and I loved many things about this movie, which we will talk about in depth, is that it does feel a bit as though the two halves of the movie are not completely wedded together. Like, I think this is the fundamental flaw of the film, that the fantastical half, like, he could have used an editor if he had been working with, you know, a studio or whatever, that there would have been oversight and he would not have been allowed to just do whatever the fuck he wanted. And I'm sure some of that visual stuff it was only possible because he had no oversight and that produced some amazing, some amazing stuff. But it's interesting to think about what happens when an artist is let completely loose, which we kind of fetishize in our mind as like, Oh, pure artistic freedom. In reality, that's like not always actually that great. I mean, I agree you know? in general, but in this particular case, while I don't think The Fall is a perfect film, I did not have any of those issues by thinking the kind of fantastical stuff was too extreme. I'm just like, it's ve- it's an absolute pleasure to watch all of the um, kind of the all the millions of beautiful locations and also kind of the fantasy stuff, which is told in a very funny way, which we'll kind of discuss in a minute when we talk about the kid and the children's storytelling and stuff. Yes. I mean, it's not that any of it, like, looked bad, of course. But I started to wonder to what extent all of the locations or even all of the sort of extra sort of fantastical people in the setting, not the central characters, were adding to the story he was telling versus just being there to be beautiful. And I couldn't quite tell. I think that a lot of it is just visuals for, like, visual pleasure's sake. And if that's what you're interested in, that's fine. But it was interesting to me that what is so known about this movie is are those incredible, like, so many of the sort of individual shots that you see in, like, a Tumblr post, right? Where people have just pulled out, like, ten of the shots from the movie and stuck them in a post, and then you see it go by in your dash. And what I found way more compelling was the stuff set in the real world and kind of wish that most of the film had been that, which is a very predictable reaction for me because I like realism. And the two, the two lead actors are really amazing. Well, this is the I thing. Mean, what, yeah. what I was thinking like when I was watching this is there are a lot of films that have maybe not this level of cult popularity, but have kind of more of a following where it's this combination of storytelling that's like maybe a B grade but then there's some kind of visual element that is so mind-bogglingly good that it kind of elevate, elevates the film to this really memorable status. And when I was watching this, I was like, actually, the storytelling is kind of better than I expected. Like like you said, kind of the stuff with the um with the, the kid and Lee Pace in the hospital is like dramatically the most compelling part of the film. But I didn't come out of it thinking, oh, this is like all style and no substance, like it's just good for Tumblr gifts. I was like, this actually does deserve the longevity it has and it's sort of disappointing that Tarson Singh's other work didn't ever really surpass this like like you said about kind of the studio constraints thing like after this the films that he made were bigger budget movies with more studio constraints so like right after this he made Immortals which is one of these kind of post 300 swords and sandals epics which I've not seen I've heard 
that visually it's above par because it's got his, it's got a lot it's got his kind of visual imagery but with like a heavy amount of kind of Zack Snyder-esque CGI but it's definitely not considered to be good in any capacity and then after that he did Mirror Mirror which is um, one of two Snow White movies that came out in quick succession I've also not seen it it's meant to be like okay um. <laughs> I mean in terms of the like studio supervision situation I don't know if that's a great sort of like well with studio supervision he made bad films because while that is true the material he was working with was so like <laughs> abysmal that it, it's like well did you have no other ideas like, I would watch the um the I would watch Mirror Mirror I would like to see the Snow White which has Julia Roberts as the evil queen. There are and Army Hammer as the prince. There are uh, <laughs> critic defenders of that movie, and it has the same costume designer. So I think yeah, it I will watch anything some... whose costumes are by Aiko Ishioka. But it seemed to me because I remember those two movies coming out, and I remember everyone talking about this film in conjunction with them, and I had not seen this film. But it had this kind of outsized presence in terms of the conversation because these movies subsequently came out and all of these critics were basically saying either I love the fall and wow, it is really unfortunate that now Darsim Singh is doing this garbage or I didn't even love the fall, but at least it was interesting. And now like, what the fuck is going on? And it is kind of, I mean, it is unfortunate that someone who clearly has such a distinct style and the ability to convey emotion, both this movie does both of those things. I mean, he's basically sold out, basically, is what occurred. And I have respect for that, too. You gotta make money, but it did not work. If he he spent, like, his entire worldly savings on a movie that made $3.7 million, I fully understand the desire to sell out if i just want him to make another movie and i was just checking after i watched this film and it doesn't look like he has anything in I mean, pre-production the problem is not selling out which again i have zero problems with anyone doing that we we live in the 21st century and selling out as a concept is yeah. sort of outdated it's more that you have to pick where you where you sell out to and he does not appear to have uh done that in the correct I got one direction Tarsim Singh, Aquaman 2. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Done. I'm in. Um, let's go back to the actual content of this film. I feel we've gotten somewhat sidetracked. My fault. Yes. Um, let's talk about the wonders of childhood imagery and storytelling. Yes. Uh, we should say that this child, Alexandria, is her name in the film, is played by a young actress called uh, Katinka Untaru. I apologize if I'm mispronouncing her name, which I probably am. Uh, But she is so wonderful. She's amazing and also not an actress. So the situation here is they hired this girl who is one of these incredible child actor performances, but this is really the only, I mean, she's she was in like a couple of things in her life. She's now an adult, but like this is like basically her only role. And they built the movie around her. So she barely spoke English, which is really clear in the film. And when I was rewatching about halfway through, I was like, there's no way that she was learning dialogue. And because there's this, uh, there's this wonderfully like natural scene where she's talking to Lee Pace, who is bedridden for most of the film. Um, and 
she says he says something and then she says something clearly not even understanding what he's saying in English and they just like having this very naturalistic back and forth where they don't understand what the fuck the other person's saying and it's just very cute and funny apparently there's just like significant parts of their interactions which are just taken from her improving and then also she influenced the storytelling of the way the fairy tale pans out because all the fairy tale stuff that Lee Pace is telling is either this really kind of simplistic adventure story slash love story that he's making up from like his own life experiences and corny cinema tropes and like him being angsty over his breakup but then it has these influences that are just sort of like absurd child plot twists and it just makes for this story that's like really a really kind of wonderfully polished visual aesthetic and like made by adults but the actual events and the dialogue that are happening are just like really silly <laughs> well this was one of I, I had a, some issues with with that that we can get to later ugh, but ugh. <laughs> yes I know I'm a hater and no fun but um Part of what I thought was so wonderful about this girl was that I would actually classify her performance in a slightly different way. I hate when people are like, oh, actually, this non-actor just wasn't acting because, like, of course, they're I, I mean, she's acting. acting right? <laughs> but I do not think that she is acting in the same way that a lot of other impressive child actors are acting which is more deliberate and controlled. As you say, she is clearly like reacting to the situation in hand in a very straightforward way. And um, one of the ways that they shot the scenes with them in this bed where Lee Pace is laid up is that they had like a secret, not secret, but like they had a camera behind the this sort of sheet that's around the bed so that the interactions of the two of them would be more natural because she wouldn't have to be staring at this camera that was in her face, which I'm sure like added to it quite a bit as well because she was like very small and that's always going to impede you even as an adult who's not used to acting, right? But there's a quality about what she's doing that feels much more just like a little kid who's been told to do stuff in front of a camera, but not in a bad way. Like she's so unpracticed that I never fully exactly believed that she was like this character in this movie, but she was so compelling that it didn't matter. And the relationship that she has with Lee Pace feels more real than it would have if she were, like, a trained child actor. Because the way they're talking to each other, as you say, is, like, they're actually just having a conversation. And I found that so incredibly compelling. And he is very, very good at interacting with her. He does not appear to get phased in any way by her just, like, rambling (laughs) on and on about stuff. And... The heart of the movie is this relationship between these two characters and she is stuck in this hospital because she's broken her arm and at this point they're not letting her go home to her family and he is stuck there because his legs are paralyzed and um, he is trying to get her to get him more morphine so he's kind of exploiting 
I mean, he is exploiting her, but he also clearly is like he's miserable, and this adorable little child is it's showing such, up. And it's is such like, a wonderful right? relationship because he, because like Lee Pace is so naturally, you know, he is perhaps the ultimate like cute puppy dog looking guy. It's like his quintessential quality in Pushing Daisies, and in this, they have this great dynamic where he's like mildly annoyed by her. He's literally using her so he can get drugs to commit suicide. And it's also kind of very emotionally moving. And then once you get to the final act, he has this incredible crying scene where you're just like, I'm dying. (laughs) Even though he's like, he's doing this like very kind of selfish thing to her. And like also kind of the way they're illustrating his attempts to commit suicide is not like here's a man who has like really difficult problems in his life and is depressed. It's more like he is completely obsessed with breaking up with this woman to the extent where it's more important to him emotionally than the fact that he's just lost the use of his legs. That was one of the things in the movie where I was sort of like, this seems like, okay. I mean, sometimes breakups get you like that. Oh, no, no, not that, like, that's, not that, like, no one has ever done that, because that's clearly not true in any that's, way. That's how operas happen. <laughs> exactly. But I guess, especially when you get to the point at the end where that's being told through the story, it wasn't that it wasn't persuasive. It was that it felt like that was less interesting to me than a lot of the other stuff that was going on. I don't know. I mean, it was, like, it's not like a critique of the movie even like it was fine that they had that excuse but I do remember watching it last night and like laughing at all the scenes in the fantasy stuff where Lee Pace's sort of alter ego character is supposed to be madly in love with this woman because it just feels very gay the whole thing feels really gay and I was like I don't really believe this but that's fine we can just progress I didn't think I thought it was more like he's just like he's created this the most shallow possible love interest that then is being reimagined through the even more shallow eyes of a six-year-old girl who doesn't fully understand romance yet. It's just like, they ought to kiss. But also he's like, oh yes, we bonded so much over sharing our information with each other. And then... (laughs) Oh, it was less the kissing, although now that you point that out, yes, they do not kiss because he's not interested in that, which is humorous. It's more like his whole vibe when he is doing sort of campy stuff in a weird costume, it did cross my mind, the fact that he is gay. Like, that that bubbled up. I guess I'm just a better person than you. Yes, that's what we can conclude from this And I was episode. also like, all romantic leads should be wearing that precise outfit and acting <laughs> like that. Like, like a prince written by a six-year-old and wearing some kind of sleeveless military jacket and like harem pants with a large saber. Yes, that is how, yeah, exactly. I will just go with that. But yes, I mean, my main takeaway from this film is that Lee Pace is a just next level dreamboat and should be in all movies. His crying is superhuman. Oh my god. such range in this simple little film. I, uh. I was just... I mean, I am not ashamed to admit that whenever anything was happening that wasn't Lee Pace, except for, like, the cute child, you know, doing things, I was just like, but what will Lee Pace be back on the screen? Chop, chop, I need, I need more of this, like, and I have always liked Lee Pace fine, like, I never, I didn't watch Pushing Daisies, and I haven't watched Halt and Catch Fire, 
although I've always meant to. Um, so my experience of him is limited to smaller things, Angels in America, And unfortunately, he has now a long resume of bad Hollywood movies. Yes. He plays, I think we can safely classify the worst MCU Marvel villain, which is Ronan the Accuser, who wears one of these outfits that's like fiberglass. Just shocking. Just shockingly, shockingly bad. And you're going to see him again because he's in fucking Captain Marvel. He's back. Cannot wait cannot wait get that money gotta send the kids to college (laughs) yeah he has no children um mortgage multiple mortgages perhaps my primary association with lee pace actually previously to watching this film had been going to comic-con in the summer of 2014 and sleeping outside (laughs) on the grass waiting to get into the big hall h panel on saturday during the day uh, which was an experience that I have had and will never have again. And what they do when you do that, for all of you people who have not had this experience, which means that you are more intelligent than I am. Though I would like to clarify that this was an anthropological experiment and not because I am actually that excited about anything that was going on in Hall H that day. Uh, all right, be a hipster about it. We will, we will link to Morgan's article in the toast about it yes, in the show notes. <laughs> indeed, I wrote it up for a publication what but what will happen is that like some famous person will come walk through at some point in the night to be like hello you're here you're so excited about it's this kind of like, like a medieval monarch handing out scraps of bread to the peasantry yes that's a very good analogy um and i remember being told by someone i was there with that this usually happens around midnight or six in the morning which are the sort of the beginning the end, beginning and the end of the sleeping periods, in theory, if you're sleeping well, which nobody is on the grass in the middle of San Diego. Sounds like the worst. Yeah, it was quite interesting. I got around two hours of sleep that night, I would say. And at three in the morning, three in the morning, Lee Pace and Andy Circus came, came through to take pictures with everyone. And I have never been less interested in taking a photo with anyone in my entire life. And they came through and there were sort of handlers who came in advance and were like, they're coming. So be ready. So, you know, take your photo. And I'd gotten to sleep maybe a half hour before and had now been woken up by this. (laughs) And I was so mad. I was so tired. And I just like, everyone's kind of getting up. And I just looked at them and I was like, no. Like, I'm not getting up. I don't... Lee Pace is fine. But, like, even now, I would not... I don't care for pictures of celebrities. I was like, I don't... Like, if Barack Obama comes down the line, I will get up with a, for a picture with him. But literally anyone else, like, no thank you. And they literally could not believe that... I think there was one other person next to me and I were both like, no. And they were like, what? What? You don't want a picture with Lee Pace in any circus? And I was like, I do not. <laughs> you will you. not get out of bed for <laughs> like, Gollum and Ronan the Accuser. <laughs> no, like, fuck off. And it was really just incredible. But I did kind of see him walk by in the dark and he looked very tall and beautiful, which he is. I mean, he literally was hired to play an elf, so I have to assume that he right. glows in yeah. real life. And I saw him in Angels in America. He was very good. And he's just a very large man. He's very tall. And so, you know, I always liked him. Very good actor. Very attractive. And yet in this movie, it's just like, oh my god. What? 
why aren't you an A-list star? This is just a tragedy. Like, get that man in some movies where he cries. Just, I demand it. Just like, Somebody. what are these, like, just, just a, really, I was about to say, like, a romance where people cry, but actually, like, any good film... The fact that there are crap people in good films and Lee Pace isn't in good films, just, I'm very upset. And you know that if there was any possibility of this happening, Brian Fuller would have fucking broken down someone's door and be like, take him out of The Hobbit and put him into like <laughs> Jane Eyre or whatever. Not Jane Eyre, one of the ones with a nice boy, but yeah. <laughs> he, he would do a very good Rochester, I think. But, but what's so appealing about him in this is that even though he's like, manipulating this small innocent child into helping him commit suicide is that he is just very appealing in like quite a pure mm. way and the thing that is the thing that made this movie stick out to me was actually not all the visuals although again some of them even though I was not as enthused about that part of the movie I did find a lot of it like really stunning and the costumes in particular are, like amazing um but was that all of the interactions he has with the kid just in terms of the way they talk to each other or like she will be in bed sort of like lying on top of him in a very casual way that is completely just like sweet and endearing and he is very natural talking to her as i was saying before and that is not normally how men are depicted engaging with children in yeah. film um you get lots of depictions on film and television of like male predators and children which and like dads like, with slightly awkward american relationships with their yes, daughters yes where it's like you're you're like a tomboy or like they don't know how to interact with them or yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was so chill. It's a really good point. Yeah, and I actually didn't even like interpret his interactions with her as him being particularly annoyed with her except when she's not getting him the morphine that he wants. Like it seemed to me that he was genuinely like very taken with her. He just also was being manipulative, which is this sad thing about the movie although it all ends well enough and the the whole dynamic was felt very distinct to me in a way that was not is not commonly shown and the fact that it's not actually her dad although they play with that quite a bit was also very sweet and when i what i liked was when the fantastical stuff sort of came up very close to that reality and there's a one moment in particular we're spoiling this movie but it doesn't matter um where he has attempted to kill himself which doesn't work and she's trying to wake him up and it sort of cuts between the fantasy and the reality in a way that is really really clever and the moments like that, that I think is the most effective one in the film, I found really interesting. And that was when I thought the sort of trick of the movie really worked. And there's this sort of sequence at the end where that is effective too. But where I kind of 
lost some interest was some of the fantasy stuff that did not feel like it was as connected to the real people because I found them so compelling, ironically, that then when the movie sort of left them, I was like, but they were so great. (laughs) I just wanted more of that. Um, And I think the fact that the narrative is so kind of like nonsensically invented by a child, it doesn't really make any sense. And even if that's the point that you're watching this thing that doesn't actually make any sense, which for me, after a while, I was like, okay, but like, who are all these people who are just like wandering around and you can't follow what's happening because there actually isn't a plot. Come on. Like, give I me was something completely here. Chill with it. I thought it, it, yeah. it worked really well. It's like a story being told by to a child with like child input. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we'll matter of taste, agree, I guess. Disagree. <laughs> Yeah. Hence why this film did not get immediately glowing reviews all right. Yes. I mean, you can understand why it did not make very much money, because it's very odd. It, yeah, I mean, it's definitely, it was never going to be, like, there was only, like, once every couple of years, like, a genuinely weird film by a little-known filmmaker actually is a success. Like, usually there has to be someone famous behind it, and in this case there was, like, really no one famous behind it. Like, this was before before anyone really knew who Lee Pace was, but... um. No, he was not a famous yeah. person. And the I mean the other actors in this are like No, no, of course they're like literally randos. Nobody's um and the main character is a small child. So this was doomed from the get-go, unfortunately. But it has lived on in an interesting way because it has What's interesting about it is that it definitely is a cult film in the ways that we were discussing, but it still has got the is kind of outsider status, I think. Like there are cult movies. I'm trying to think of an example. I feel like I just was looking something up recently that would fall into this category. There are cult movies that made no money at the time, where you look back at it and you're like, "Wow, that didn't make any money because it's been they've been so totally sort of absorbed into the like film mainstream." after the fact right whereas this one still has this kind of odd placement as like a weird film that some people watch if they like weird films which is not a bad place to be in all things considered particularly given that lee pace is now becoming more famous so they can capitalize on that So something I really enjoy about this film is that there are a lot of movies I think would be classified as adult fairy tales. And I, in my late teens and early 20s, as an avowed goth, still a goth, of course, experienced much of this subgenre of media. A lot of it is either like edgy, slightly sexy version of a fairy tale, which is fine because like the original like Germanic fairy tales were edgy and sexy. Or you're going for this sort of Tim Burton realm. And something I find interesting about this movie is that I feel like it is definitely meant to be consumed by adults. And I think you probably get more out of it if you're older, because I definitely didn't get as much out of it when I was 18 as I do now. But it does have this incredibly kind of simplistic, like very directly derivative fairy tale storytelling. Like the characters are, the characters that are in Lee Pace's story are so basic Charles Darwin and then there's this character <laughs> who he just describes as the Indian because he's just like cribbing off 
early Hollywood movies, but she interprets it as like an actual Indian rather than a Native American because she knows an Indian man in real life. So she's like, here's like this Indian man with a long beard. <laughs> and then he's talking about like him in a wigwam in a with a squaw and stuff like yes. this. It's just like very sweet kind of combination of an adult viewpoint on something that's being told from a child's perspective, which I find pretty rare. And I think the only thing I can really imagine that has a similar kind of way of storytelling that weirdly and um, a similar way of storytelling to that is weirdly is drunk history <laughs> where you have these like <laughs> serious like you have these people doing the visual representation of just like a completely wasted person trying to explain something so i liked i liked this unique take on the concept of adult fairy story that is so good i could not have anticipated that over the course of this podcast recording we would wind up a drunk history. That is just not something that I foresaw, but I well, like that we've gotten here. <laughs> my final point for this podcast is taking a sharp, abrupt 180 from drunk history to my appreciation of Beethoven. Because uh, this movie has a truly iconic usage of one of the movements of Beethoven's seventh symphonies to the point where I actually associate this piece of music with this movie, which is pretty pretty difficult like the, you, you do see like there are certain movies where we'll use a relatively well-known piece of music and be like this is attached to this forever but it's the kind of piece of music it's not like fucking Paco Bell's canon or something it's like relatively well-known like pop classic but enough that like this must have been one of my formative exposures to it kind of like when I was when I was a kid, Beethoven's pastoral is like completely attached to me in my mind as the railway children because I listened to some audio tape of like the railway children and that was their like schmaltzy theme music. But, <laughs> but with this, I'm like, this is the fall. And there's like so many recordings of it. And like the best recording is the one that they use repeatedly in the soundtrack to the fall. <laughs> oh and my it's God. kind of the opposite of like, there's so many movies that just pick some kind of pop classic. And I'm like, this is just, you're just a charlatan. <laughs> <laughs> like in fucking Daredevil, I love Wilson Fisk to death, but the people who were choosing the soundtrack to that were trying so hard to go for a Hannibal vibe where it's like, he's sitting in an ex expensive apartment planning a sophisticated crime, and in the background there'll be like some basic bitch like classical music, and I'd just be like, oh fuck off. Like, <laughs> it was like fucking, like, a, like, it was like Bach's first cello sonata, which any 12-year-old can play, and I was just like, no one is listening to this like yo-yo ma wedding bullshit. The fall, the fall has perfectly selected the pinnacle of melodramatic music for this for this film and i appreciate it greatly that was a very very um on brand little rant that you just <laughs> went on right there thank you i appreciate it very good uh i did not notice this so um we have different tastes <laughs> play it like three times no i noticed perfect. that there was like music in it i do not know anything about beethoven except like the very you know <laughs> like the fifth well, so very beautiful piece of music that they have initially in the title sequence where you see the black and white movie where lee pace falls off the bridge but the only other piece of music i really noticed in this movie is there's a point where 
like the kid has this like magic phrase where he she says googly googly to like get rid of evil spirits and there's like a fucking choir singing googly googly in the back of this really like dramatic scene where all these people are about to assassinate Lee Pace and I was like glad they got like some original music in there too and it's some pretty <laughs> unique lyrical choices <laughs> oh my god the the people who were hired for that I'm sure like, I'm sure they've oh, had yes. to sing all sorts of bullshit. Like Hollywood choir. <laughs> You've seen it all. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, um, I think we should end on that note, because how could we top top ourselves? <laughs> we've we've reached the pinnacle. Um, I would definitely recommend this film to people who've not seen it. I had a great time watching it. Lee Pace cries mm-hmm. so beautifully. His hair is so good. Just everything about it superb uh happy birthday once again to sam thank you to vanessa for uh making us watch this film i really appreciate it it was great fun a reminder that if you ever want to make us watch anything you can do so at our patreon that is an option this we have so far been very lucky that people have selected very interesting and enjoyable films for us to watch have good taste yeah, so and you just can... FYI, we do still have a third Star Wars movie bought and paid for, so no one needs to throw us a hundred dollars currently for Star Wars. Yes. That has been that has been arranged. <laughs> there will be more coming at the hundred dollar tier, but you know, we're we're working on it. Things things are things are happening. But in the meantime, if you want to give us fifty dollars to watch either a, a classy artistic movie like this or a piece of garbage. Whatever you choose, we are available for hire. However, next week, we will be watching a classic of cinema, His Girl Friday, starring Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell, one of my very favorite movies of all time. Gav and I watched this together at my grandmother's old house on Cape Cod many years ago. Very wholesome. Yes. Uh, I believe we were lying on twin beds next to each other and the computer <laughs> yes. was sitting on a little Which table. Which is very topical for the theme of this podcast episode because Morgan was like, we have to do one about black and white 1940s movies about divorce. So we were <laughs> lying in our little divorce bed. <laughs> yes. So uh, the reason that we were doing this is that the incredible uh, philosopher Stanley Cavill, who wrote the definitive book, on the comedy of remarriage called Pursuits of Happiness died uh, around two weeks ago uh, as of this recording. Uh, He was very old, but he wrote this incredible book. I used it a lot for my master's dissertation. It is the best piece of criticism that I have ever read. It is so, so, so good. And um, I read it when I should have been working on Victorian literature. And then I watched a gazillion old Hollywood rom-coms and managed to somehow use this to write about middle March. It was fine. And this is now like one of my favorite sort of cultural things or those old movies. And it's all because of this book. And so I thought it would be fun to watch one of the movies he talks about in that book and put a PDF of that chapter and of the introduction up on Patreon. If you are interested in reading those for background, we will obviously be discussing them in the episode. This is not required, but they're really good. So you can, Check those out if you so desire. Uh, again, that is His Girl Friday. Next week, it's amazing. Cary Grant's so good. D- do yourself a favor and watch this film. It's perfect. So thank you 
again for listening. Uh, you can find us aside from our Patreon at overinvestedpodcast.com, on Twitter at overinvestedpod, and on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. Thanks. Bye.